Okay, so now let's move to the next chapter, which is uh, skeletal muscle in general. But we're gonna main, we mainly going to focus on the skeletal muscle function. Um, smooth muscle is very similar. We'll say some words at the end. And cardiac muscle is very similar to skeletal muscle. And there are some differences that will be mentioned when we get to the heart and cardiovascular system. To start, we have some examples here of muscular groups that are going to help us to understand how the muscle work. Um, these are the two more common muscles or known, very known muscles, the biceps and the triceps, which by definition are called antagonistic muscles to each other because when the biceps relax, the triceps contracts. And in the other way around, when the biceps contracts, triceps relax. This brings the concept of prime mover and antagonist. Prime mover is the muscle related with the main motion, like inflection of the forearm. The biceps will be the prime mover. An antagonist muscle for this movement will be the triceps, which is going to relax at that moment. Now, for extension of the forearm, the triceps is the prime mover, and the biceps will be the antagonist because it's going to relax, it's going to allow the movement. But both muscles work at the same time, and that's the point of the muscular groups. They muscles work in groups. They don't work uh, by themselves or just solitary muscle contracting. They usually contract in groups. And that's what we call prime movers and antagonist muscle, as we see here. For contraction, the biceps is the prime mover, the triceps is the antagonist. And for the extension, triceps is the prime mover and biceps the antagonist. Now, going more to the structure of the muscle so we can understand the function and even going more to the molecular level. This picture is showing the organization of the skeletal muscle. Going from the big muscle until the very small components, we have the whole muscle here attached to the bone by the tendon, and the muscle is wrapped by a membrane of connective tissue known as the epimysium. Epimysium is going to wrap the whole muscle and join the tendon, that's connective tissue. Now, this whole muscle contains fascicles, fascicles of muscle fibers. And those fascicles are wrapped by a different connective tissue now called perimysium. And in that fascicle, we will find many muscle fibers, many muscle fibers. And in between the muscle fibers, we'll have connective tissue. In this case, it's called endomysium. So we have epimysium, perimysium, and endomysium, the layers of wraps, wraps of connective tissue that organize the muscle fibers in fascicles and in muscles. The unit is the muscle fiber, which is the muscle cell. 
and we call it cell or fiber because it is considered a syncytium. What is mean? What, what 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 this means? Syncytium means a group of cells that have been fused and work together. Group of cells working together. Yeah, a group <clears throat> of cells that are fused and working together. The muscle fiber, as we see in this diagram, contains many nuclei that we can see pushed against the walls. We see two nuclei here, and there are many more. There's another one here. It's three nuclei. Initially, during the development, the embryology development, fetal development, these cells are known as myoblasts and they have one nucleus. But then, during the development, they fuse to each other and it turns into a big muscle cell with many nuclei. And that's why we call it muscle fiber because this cell or fiber gets to be very long, almost as the length of, the, of one muscle. And that's why we call it muscle fiber. But it's a cell, it contains organelles, contains a plasma membrane, that in this case we call sarcolemma. And the most important feature is that we can recognize estriations or bands running across the cell. Some bands are dark and they are called A bands. In between there are light bands called I bands. And in the middle of the light bands we may be able we, we are able to see very thin lines and they are called Z-lines. I-bands, A-bands, and Z-lines. This is the aspect under the microscope, the striations. We cannot see more with the compound microscope, light microscope. We need to use electron microscope to see more details about it. And that's the aspect of these striations and here we see those bands, A band, which is the dark band under the microscope, and I band, which is the light band. And in the middle of this light band, known as I band, we have the Z line, Z line, which is a line in the middle of the I band. Now, if we see more, if we see this picture more to the molecular level, we see this other picture right here. And we see that there are two types of filaments, which are, some are thick filaments and some are thin filaments. The thick filaments are composed of the protein called myosin, myosin filaments. And the thin filaments are actin, the protein is called actin. And look at the arrangement of that. The thin filaments or actin filaments, they are all anchored to the Z line and they are intertwined with the thick filaments or myosin filaments. Myosin filaments are just like bars that are in between two thin filaments of actin. So this is the molecular arrangement of all these filaments, which are proteins. Under the light microscope, we see them like this, this aspect of dark bands and light bands. Z lines.
and the muscle fiber. The muscle fiber receives innervation or is connected to the axon of a neuron that will activate it. It will stimulate it. That's what we call the motor unit. The motor unit is composed by a single motor neuron and all the muscle fibers that innervate. Because as we see here, we see two neurons here in the spinal cord. And if we follow the axon of one of them, we get to see that it's getting to many muscle fibers. So that's one motor unit. One neuron with all the muscle fibers that receive innervation from that neuron. And the connection is known as the neuromuscular junction. To be more specific, motor and plate is that small area where of uh, muscle fiber sarcolemma or plasma membrane where the motor neuron stimulates the fiber. The neurotransmitter here is acetylcholine, the one that the neuron releases to stimulate <laughs> the muscle fiber. Here we see the neuromuscular junction picture in a diagram with the motor end plate. The motor end plate is that part of the membrane of the muscle fiber or sarcolemma that contains receptors for the neurotransmitters, which are released by the axon of this neuron. And that's the beginning of the process of muscular contraction. A nervous signal, electrical signal is needed so the muscle fiber will contract. And recruitment, it's a word that we use to describe that process by which the motor unit stimulates muscle fibers. Like if we are making, we need fine control, very detailed movement, accuracy, then smaller motor units will be needed. Meaning that one neuron may innervate few muscle fibers. Like the eye muscles, which have about 23 muscle fibers or motor units. But if we need movements that are not so accurate, like stronger muscles, like the quadriceps muscles, the muscles of the back, more these motor units will have thousands of muscle fibers that are innervated. No need for much accuracy. Like we see in the diagram here, small motor unit, one neuron innervating three muscle fibers, but a large motor, motor unit this other neuron is innervated up to six different muscle fibers. Now let's see the mechanism of contraction. We have seen the bands running across. We know the I bands, A bands, the arrangement of this Filaments, myofilaments is what it makes this aspect of bands running across, the striations. And we know that the filaments are made of proteins, myosin, the thick filaments, and actin, the thin filament. 
There are some terms here, like the sarcolemma, which means the plasma membrane of the muscle fiber. Sarcoplasm is the cytoplasm of the, plasma, of the muscle fiber. And the composition of these bands that we see under the light microscope <laughs> are the eye bands, which are the light bands. There's only thin filaments, actin filaments. But in the A band, we have thick filaments and thin filaments overlapping. That's why it's seen as dark. There are many fibers overlapping there. Now in the center, in the center of the A band, there's a clear band, which is called H band. And Z lines, or Z discs, are found in the center of the I band. Here's that explanation of the composition of all these bands that we see. The I band is all this, and we see thick filaments, myosin, overlapping with thin filaments. But in the central part, there's a H band, which is lighter, because it's only thick filaments, it's not thick filaments. Now the I band, there's only actin filaments, in the central part of the A band, we see a line which is called the Z line or the Z disc, which is actually the place where all these actin filaments are anchored like springs. Now, to describe this and understand the function or muscular contraction, we define we define the sarcomere, the sarcomere as the unit, the functional unit of the muscle fiber. And it's that area in between two Z-discs. One Z-disc, next Z-disc, and that area, that segment in between two Z-discs is what we call the sarcomere. Now, in previous picture, it seems that the thick filaments are floating there. They're not connected to anything, but they're naturally floating. Here we see something. We see a yellow protein, like a spring, connected to the end of these thick filaments and anchoring to the Z line, you'll see this. This is another protein called titan filament, which is holding the myosin or thick filament there. So the muscular contraction can be explained as that movement, sliding movement in between fibers, between the myofilaments, actin and myosin. And that sliding movement will make the sarcomere get short. Smaller or shorter, which is explained here with the diagram. 
the area between two Z discs, we can see them that gets smaller and smaller when the muscle contracts. The I bands are the ones that get shorter, the blue segment here. The I bands, see the muscular contraction get smaller. But the I band will not change. It will remain the same size. And that is explained by the sliding theory, sliding filaments. So the filaments will slide over the other thick and thin filaments. And now we get to the molecular level, to see how this movement actually happens, the sliding movement of the actin over the myosin. And if we see this at the molecular level, we notice that the thick filament has, is composed by myosin, but that protein myosin looks like having a head and a tail. There are many heads myosin arranged in this way. On top of this, we see the thin filament, which is actually a sequence of globular proteins, like beads of actin, that are intertwined in this way, and connected by a long fiber, which is a protein called tropomyosin. And at every certain distance, we see some other globular proteins called troponin. The actin is a set of beads connected to each other and connected by the tropomyosin, which is a long fiber that makes it intertwined. And uh, some units of troponin. What we see in the picture is the head of the myosin interacting with the actin right here. And there's an ATP here, we're gonna see how that works. What we see there is that the head of the myosin, which are actually two heads, they are also, they, are, they have a site for ATP and another site for the protein acting, which is in the thin filament. So that's what we see here, these two little places, the site for actin and the site for an ATP molecule, both of them in the head of the myosin. Now the sliding movement, the sliding movement which can be analogous to putting your fingers in this way and getting filling the gaps in this way. That's actually the movement of the actin and, and myosin filaments. That is achieved by the sliding of the actin over the myosin by the effect of these myosin heads. These myosin heads, if you notice, they have, it has an angle here, like the hand is bent in this way. And this other picture is straight, like an extension. Well, these heads are able to move in this way that movement are pulling the actin in this direction. And that movement 
is achieved thanks to this action of the ATP. And we'll see what is the action of the ATP here to move uh, the myosin heads over the actin. So the myosin head has a site for ATP. And in initial position, the head is, we can say, in flexion. Let's see this one first. This is the initial position. The ATP in the side, and the myosin head bent like this, like in flexion. It's not connected to the actin yet. Next movement will be extension of the head. It's like cocking a gun. And that is achieved by the breakdown of this molecule of ATP. In the next step here, we see the ATP turn into ADP plus phosphate. This ATP molecule has been broken down. Energy is released when that happens. And that energy helps to this protein to get extended in this. And when that happens, the myosin side for actin will be activated and it will attach to the actin. And now we are in this next step. The head of the myosin is attached to the actin side. ATP has been broken into ADP plus phosphate. The head is extended. But now, the phosphate, the phosphate molecule will be released from here. That release of the phosphate will make this head to move again and flex. And now we have this. The myosin head is flexed. Phosphate is being released. There's only ADP here. Take circle. But the head of the myosin has done this. Engage the actin, flex, and move the actin in this direction. That is called power stroke. This is called power stroke. When the myosin head flexes and makes the actin slide. Now after this power stroke, the ADP will be released and the site is exposed and a new ATP binds the myosin head. And that will make the myosin release the actin. And the myosin head will disengage, will detach from the actin and will return to the original position. You see the whole sequence here again. Step number one, we see the myosin head with ATP and turn into ADP plus phosphate and right before it engages to the actin. Then it comes the cross bridge. Myosin head is bound to the actin. Phosphate is released and the power stroke will happen. After the power stroke, ADP is released, the pink, 
and a new ATP will come and occupy that site. And when that happens, we have the actin detached and the myosin head with an ATP molecule right at the beginning, ready to contract again because the next step will be extension of the head, ATP turns into ATP plus phosphate, and then cross bridge, binds the actin, phosphate is released, power stroke, after the power stroke ADP is released, and that site is occupied by another ATP. So all this process is summarizing this. The myosin here will make this all the time. Flex, push the actin, and then go back to the beginning, engages again, move the actin, disengage, engage again. That is the process of the sliding. And every time the myosin head flexes and extends and pushes, it's consuming one ATP. And it's not only one head. There are many, many heads in only one fiber, in only one filament. And imagine the amounts of ATPs are needed for this process to happen in muscular contraction. Now that's on the part, on the side of the myosin. What happens in the acting? There's, there are more things happening in the acting place. The acting is made or composed by units of G-actin, which means globular, G for globular, double road, twisted, like a helix, and a long fiber of tropomyosin. And what is the tropomyosin? It's actually running on top of the G-actin beads. And what it's actually doing is blocking the site of the actin. The actin has an active site for myosin. And it's actually blocking that and preventing the cross bridge, preventing the myosin head attaching the actin. Now every certain distance there is a troponin complex which is made by three units, troponin I, T, and C. Troponin C binds to calcium, that's why this C for calcium. And that's when the calcium comes in play here. Because when the muscle cells are stimulated, calcium is released. Where the calcium is? The calcium is stored in this endoplasmic reticulum of the muscle fiber. And when the calcium is released, it will attach to troponin C. In this picture we see the troponin attached to the tropomyosin. Now in this second picture we see calcium attached to the troponin. When the calcium attaches to the troponin, this troponin is also connected to the tropomyosin. Here, look at the tropomyosin is blocking these sites, binding sites for the myosin. They are blocked all the time. But when the calcium comes and attaches the troponin, it's going to pull the tropomyosin, and the sites for myosin will be exposed. And I will be free to interact with the myosin heads But the myosin heads, they have their own process of ATP, flexion, extension. So both things happen. The calcium working, attaching to the troponin, which is uh, the regulatory protein of the sites for myosin, and in the myosin, the ATPs are the ones that make the movement possible. 
Calcium is stored in the endoplasmic reticulum of the muscle fiber, known as the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Sarcoplasmic reticulum is specially modified to store calcium in the muscle fiber. And is also arranged surrounding all the muscle fibers as we see here. When the muscle fiber is stimulated by the axon of the neuron, the action potential will travel along the membrane, will reach the sarcoplasmic reticulum, and that will be the stimulus for the calcium to be released from the sarcoplasmic reticulum to the cytoplasm. And the muscle and the myofilaments acting in the myosin, they are in the cytoplasm. That's how the calcium gets close and attaches to the troponin. And after the contraction, all the calcium that was released, when the muscle relaxes, all the calcium is retaken to the endoplasmic reticulum. This is showing the sequence of all these things. Starting with the motor neuron up here. Motor neuron sending a signal, and the synapse, neuromuscular junction, acetylcholine is released. This is what happens in the membrane. The acetylcholine receptors <coughs> will get the acetylcholine, open gated channels, sodium diffuses, action potential is produced here in the middle. Since cytoplasmic reticulum and transverse tubules are extensions of the membrane, the action potential spreads to these places and activates calcium channels that will release calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum and get it into the sarcoplasm, the cytoplasm of the muscle's fiber. And finally, this calcium will be acting, attaching the troponin, and allowing all the movement of the myosin heads and acting filaments. That can be seen in this picture. We see the Neuromuscular junction, the axons here. We have the receptors in the motor enclave for acetylcholine. The action potential travels along the membrane, gets into the T-tubules and the sarcoplasmic reticulum that contains the calcium. The calcium is released to the sarcoplasm, and in the sarcoplasm is where all these muscle or myofilaments are located. And the calcium will attach the troponin, and uh, the myosin heads will attach to the actin, and all the muscular contraction will happen. And when the contraction is done, the muscle will relax. No more action potentials, and the calcium will return, will return to the sarcoplasmic reticulum. No more calcium is available to bind troponin C, and the tropomyosin, the fiber of tropomyosin, will block the active sites for myosin again, going back to relaxation. So from here we see, so far, many things are needed for a muscle to contract. We need a neuron, we need an action potential, we need calcium, and we need ATPs. And for having ATPs, we need nutrients, glucose. And that is a connection with the metabolic part.
Now, talking about the skeletal muscle fiber and muscles and how they contract, we have some patterns of contraction that we're going to describe now. Mus muscle twitch, the summation effect, tetanus effect. When the muscle is stimulated, it will contract and relax quick. Especially when we stimulate with a single electrical stimulus or shock. And that's called a twitch, and that's the representation of this curve, a muscular twitch, with a brief moment before the tension or contraction happens, which is called the latent period. And we have seen this in the uh, lab last Thursday, that if we increase the voltage, it will increase the strength of the twitch, but there is a maximum. There's no... Uh, linear relationship. There's a limit for this. And if a second shock is applied immediately after the first, then there will be a summation effect. The tension will be greater. And those contractions that happen with many stimuli or electrical shocks are called graded contractions, which is the base, or the basis of this is recruitment of more fibers. More stimulation, more fibers are stimulated, more fibers are recruited, and the contractions will get stronger. But if we stimulate one muscle fiber only, there's a maximum, we cannot stimulate more. And there are some effects that we can elicit, like this one called tetanus. If we increase the frequency of shocks, electrical shocks, then the relaxation time will be decreased in between twitches and we have something called incomplete tetanus, which is a sustained contraction, but it's not maximal contraction. But if we go even more frequent shocks, we will have complete tetanus, which is a sustained contraction, maximal contraction of the muscle, which can be dangerous because it may hurt the muscle fiber. And it still has a limit in duration because after some time, the muscle fiber will get fatigued, it will be damaged, and uh, uh, we'll see problems for recovery. We don't get to see tetanus usually after exercise unless uh, we reach extremes in some groups of muscle fibers, and that's the reason why sometimes it gets a muscular contracture. And but it's usually because of fatigue. And as long as you have a rest, a good rest, right after that exercise, the muscle fiber would not get damaged uh, because you can control it. And sometimes you cannot control it, like in the case of this disease called tetanus, where there's an excessive stimulation, the neuron is damaged, and uh, in that case, the muscle fibers will get more damaged. But it's not usually common to see tetanus, usually in our daily activities. There must be some problem or condition that is stimulating this. Trepe is uh, another type of response that we see when we increase the voltage. 
And this is about recruitment. We increase the voltage of a signal or a stimulus, and more muscle fibers will be stimulated. When all the muscle fibers are stimulated, that's the maximum of that. And the thing, a good thing about this response is that if we start stimulating the muscle progressively, we will improve the efficiency of the muscle. And this is the basis of the warming up period that we have before exercise. And we are working out usually before getting our routine workout. Uh, we warm up our muscles and that is achieved by certain movements, stretching and not bearing too much weight until muscles get warm. Well, we are actually doing this. We are stimulating the muscle progressively with little efforts, but sending a stimuli. So when the time comes for the real effort or exercise, your muscles will respond better because more fibers have been recruited and are ready to contract. And that can be represented as this graph. Like every time you stimulate, after that, the contraction will be stronger and stronger. Still, there's a limit because when you reach or recruit the maximum number of muscle fibers, you cannot have more muscular strength than that. So this is, you said that we can call this like the warm-up. Yeah, that's what we, that happens when we warm up our muscles. And then when these muscles work as groups, there are two patterns of contractions called isotonic and isometric. Isotonic, the muscle fiber gets short and the tension, the strength produced is greater than the load that we are lifting or holding. And it can be two types of isotonic, concentric and eccentric. Concentric is when we actually, like in that example, lift that weight, and we contract the biceps, and we are able to lift that load, that weight. But then when we go back and extend, the biceps is still contracting because it's holding the weight at a certain movement. And at the same time, it's stretching. It's stretching, but still keeping attention. And that is still considered isotonic eccentric contraction this time. Isometric is when we hold this weight. Um, when it's too heavy for us, we are able to hold it, but we're not able to make the movement of flexion with the biceps. The muscle is not changing its size, but it's holding the object, meaning that the muscular strength is the same as the weight of the, of the object. But we're not getting stronger than that weight. If we are, if we get stronger than the weight, then there will be contraction, isotonic contraction. But until that point, it's isometric. And every day, we, we, we move our muscles, we contract our muscles, we always doing this, isometric, isotonic. When we are lifting something, first we do isometric until we are able to lift it. And then it turns isotonic. And then when we stretch, it's eccentric, isotonic. So all the time we're making all these movements. These are patterns of contractions that happen uh, one after another. When we walk, also, 
it's isometric until the moment that you're able to push your weight forward and then becomes isotonic and then again isometric and isotonic The state of contraction depends, or the, the, the strength of contraction depends on the initial position at which the filaments are. And there is an ideal, an ideal size of the sarcomere here that is phrased as 2.25, 2.25 micrometers or microns, which is the optimal size of the sarcomere. The sarcomere is this size, meaning that the muscle is not too contracted or not too stretched. At this point, we will have maximum strength when we contract it. But if the sarcomere is shorter, then like this, 1.6 or 6.5, which is here, the muscular strength is not so great. And when the muscle is overstretched here, this point, there's no, almost no contraction. When the muscle is overstretched, we'll see this um, example when we get to the cardiovascular system because there's a disease called congestive heart failure. And what happens here is the muscle fibers of the heart, which work as the same as the skeletal muscle because it's stri striated, it gets too stretched because there's too much blood in the heart and the heart is weak. So the heart gets dilated, the walls get too stretched. They're so stretched and so dilated that the sarcomeres in the heart in that condition gets like this. There's almost no overlapping between the actin and the myosin. How the myosin heads are going to bring the actin together? There's no chance. So this is bad for the heart because at this point the heart is unable to contract it's too stretched, there's too much blood inside. And that's called congestive heart failure. In skeletal muscle, we don't see that much unless we damage the muscle. But in the cardiac muscle, we can see that as part of a disease. And we can summarize that in this statement, increasing the sarcomere length decreases muscle tension. That's what we see in the second part of the graph. Because there are fewer interactions between the myosin and actin. And at a certain point, no tension can be generated. There's no point at which the myosin can pull the actin. It's too overstretched. We call that um, the rubber band, the rubber band law. Because if you grab a rubber band and you stretch it and stretch it and stretch it like a thousand times after that it gets so overstretched, it's not making any tension. Same thing happens with the heart in some diseases. Questions, comments to this point? <laughs>